I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a banquet of the best bits from across the week's stories. I'm Anne McElvoy, and coming up, the mysteries of modern love and how to find it. Why atomic clocks get better with age, and government sanctioned science fiction in China. We'll start with our cover story. After the Cold War ended, socialism became a dirty word for many in the West. It was synonymous with economic collapse and oppression and relegated to the political fringes and failing states. But it's now coming back into fashion. Millennial socialism offers a sharp critique of what's gone wrong in Western societies. The millennial socialists think that inequality has spiralled out of control and that the economy is rigged in favour of vested interests. They think that myopia and lobbying have led governments to ignore the increasing likelihood of climate catastrophe. And they believe that the hierarchies which govern society and the economy, regulators, bureaucracies and companies, no longer serve the interests of ordinary folk and must be democratised. Some of this is beyond dispute, but we argued that the new, new left's prescriptions for these ills are reckless, verging on the dangerous. Take fiscal policy. Some on the left peddle the myth that vast expansions of government services can be paid for primarily by higher taxes on the rich. In reality, as populations age, it will be hard to maintain existing services without raising taxes on middle earners. Ms. Ocasio-Cortez has floated a tax rate of 70% on the highest incomes, but one plausible estimate puts the extra revenue at just $12 billion, or 0.3% of the total tax take. Meanwhile, their universal urge to democratise would paralyse business. The socialists' urge for greater control of the firm is rooted in a suspicion of the remote forces unleashed by globalisation. Empowering workers to resist change would ossify the economy. Less dynamism is the opposite of what is needed for the revival of economic opportunity. We grant that millennial socialism's readiness to challenge the status quo is attractive. But like the socialism of old, it suffers from a faith in the incorruptibility of collective action and an unwarranted suspicion of individual vim. Liberals should oppose it. For an in-depth analysis of the Millennial Socialist Manifesto and what governments could learn from it, read the briefing in this week's issue of The Economist. And if you're not yet a subscriber, go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. As the memory of Cold War socialism has faded over the last 20 years, far stranger things have become the new normal. About a third of marriages in America now start online. On Valentine's Day, our new daily podcast, The Intelligence, examined how we find love in a digital age with Hal Hodson, our technology correspondent. 
you know, you're no longer confined to your friends and friends of friends for romantic partners. And this hypothetically can lead to better relationships. Okay, and well, also, no I, probably, names, I can't right? say, no, no, no names. names. No names. Okay, okay. so. Uh, this guy is 28. Oh, no, he likes country. Forget it. Okay, left. Uh, he doesn't have eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. Look at the picture. His glasses are covering his eyebrows. Okay, let's find out if he has eyebrows. I make videos and take Six photos. Six two. Wow. As apparently I should state this. Look at him there. He looks okay, he does look kind of cool. Yeah. Okay, let's swipe right. Yes, really? You got, oh, <laughs> yeah, amazing. we swipe Woo! right. We did it. It's not like you're meeting someone who's 20% better for you over the internet. But even if they're tiny, even if you're just meeting people who are a little bit better for you, and there's 200 million people on it, that's that's a lot of human happiness. That's a lot of... That's, that's a large in volume, even if it's small per person. And so I think that's, that's a net good. A fading love affair was the subject of the latest episode of The Economist Asks, our chat show. My guest was Cliff Sims, a White House staffer whose no-holds-barred memoir, Team of Vipers, has prompted a lawsuit from the Trump campaign. In return, Mr. Sims is suing Donald Trump. So I asked him how a president who inspires such fierce loyalty among supporters receives so little from many of his own senior staff. I think what I learned was loyalty in Trump world is a one-way street, uh, that he does demand it of people. He does, you know, it's kind of a buzzword that he just loves, you know, people that are going to go out and, and be loyal to him, especially publicly. But I found that he does not give loyalty, that does not extend the other direction. And the last chapter of my book is titled Disposable, because I learned the one unfailing truth of Trump world, which is that if you don't share his last name, you are disposable. And I think that people get that uh, when they work for him. And that's why sometimes, I, you know, he perhaps does not get the loyalty that you might expect. Our science and tech podcast, Babbage, paid homage to a bit of kit that served billions of people faithfully for decades. This year's £1 million Queen Elizabeth Engineering Prize went to the creators of the Global Positioning System, or GPS. Among them, Hugo Fruauf. Without uh, overstating the case, uh, we had no need to change the signal structure since 1973. Now, I don't know if anybody can beat that record. But it, where the improvement is coming from is the atomic clocks, which is sort of my bag. The atomic clocks are working a factor of 100 more accurate than in the 1980s. And that is just refining physics. Physics isn't like a computer that gets old next year. You know, it's, you, can be, you kind of refine physics, and it, the laws don't change. We still have one of the satellites online still that was uh, launched in 1975, and, and the atomic clock is 22 years old. This stuff works, and it's like the wine. Atomic clocks, the longer you have them in space, the better they get, truly. Back to this week's paper now, where our free exchange columnist imagined a world without a service that to some is almost as indispensable as GPS. There has never been such an agglomeration of humanity as Facebook. Some 2.3 billion people, 30% of the world's population, engage with the network each month. Economists reckon it may yield trillions of dollars' worth of value for its users. But Facebook is also blamed for all sorts of social horrors, from addiction and bullying to the erosion of fact-based political discourse and the enabling of genocide. 
So what would life be like without Facebook? A new study between New York and Stanford universities kicked several thousand people off the social network to find out. Those booted off tended not to redistribute their liberated minutes to other websites and social networks, but chose instead to watch more television and spend time with friends and family. They consumed much less news and were thus less aware of events, but also less polarized in their views about them than those still on the network. Leaving Facebook boosted self-reported happiness and reduced feelings of depression and anxiety. Even so, most people are unwilling to log out permanently. That reluctance would seem to indicate that Facebook, despite its problems, generates lots of value for consumers, which would presumably vanish were the network to disappear. Yet that is not quite clear. It is possible that a user might not want to go without a service used by 2.3 billion others, but also that the world would be better off if the service did not exist at all. A hypothesis that for now remains firmly in the realm of thought experiment. Fact and fiction blurred together in China last week. Our correspondent went to see *The Wandering Earth*, the country's first blockbusting science fiction film. Earth must be moved away from the expanding sun, which threatens to engulf it. As it is propelled across the solar system by gargantuan thrusters. It gets trapped in Jupiter's gravitational pull. The apocalypse looms. There is only one hope for the human race: China. Many Chinese commentators attribute the film's stellar success to growing pride in the country's space program. Last month, China became the first country to land a spacecraft on the far side of the moon. But the film is also a foreign policy primer, repeating ad nauseum one of President Xi's favorite foreign policy mantras: "A community with a shared future for mankind." Economic Daily, a party-owned newspaper, praised the film for portraying this concept so adroitly. In many ways, the film can be interpreted as a parable of the Chinese government's idea of multilateralism. Rescue teams from the likes of Britain and Japan dutifully answer the call of Chinese team leaders. No Americans are featured at any point. Even in the ethereal world of sci-fi, the Chinese government remains firmly in control of things. And finally, a reporter for our books and arts section listened rapt to a performance in Pamplona of Bertolaritza, the Basque oral tradition of improvised song. The rules are simple but exacting. Given a theme or a prompt, Bertolaris invent a poem of between eight and twelve lines, which must fit a prescribed rhyming form. Next, they choose a melody from thousands of traditional tunes, or coin a new one on the spot. But Solaris usually think for around thirty seconds. The silence can feel chasmic, and then they sing. That's my Arlen Luhambio. The first female champion of the discipline, she's become something of an emblem in its revival.
Not long ago, it was something for men in the bar at night, according to Estibalitz Estibar of Bertzelzale El Cartier, an association that promotes the tradition. Increasingly, the typical Bertzelari is young, urban and educated. They often deal with contemporary issues of family, society, ethnicity and politics. In Pamplona, the songs touched on Venezuela, the closure of squats and the gender politics of dinner parties. Fans describe it not as folk art, but as a social movement. Over bitter cider and sweet shots of Pazaran, a slow and anise liqueur, everyone had their own story about how they got hooked. But hooked was the word they used. It is the camaraderie that draws the Bertzolaris to the continuous events, few of which pay. From time to time, the pattern of rhythm and rhyme in a Berzo reveals what the last few lines will be before the poet delivers them. These moments when the audience and the Bertzlari sing together feel almost religious. last lines of this week's tasting menu fade away remember there's much more at economist.com or from economist radio on your podcast app and while you're with us please take a few moments to rate us on apple podcasts and take a look at the intelligence our new daily show we'd love to hear from you about any of that i'm Anne mccalvoy and in london this is the economist 